0: Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins
1: and Nick Bridges.
0: And today we have a very special guest and one of our co-workers extraordinaire, Kirsten Stewart. Welcome, Kirsten. Thanks for having me, guys. We're so excited to have you with us. Yeah, I'm excited, too.
1: Inspired by our last episode, No History's researchers decided to delve deeper into the lives of some famous Black Canadians. Today, we'll be discussing Mary-Joseph Angelique... Porsche White, Violet King Henry, and Albert Jackson. In addition to being an avid podcast listener, Kirsten was a researcher on today's episode and is an expert on civil rights history and the Cold War.
0: Alright, let's get exploring into some of this Black History Month.
1: Yeah, let's delve deeper.
0: Let's notice some history. So just before we get into discussing some of these people, we want to talk a bit about the history of Black History Month. So this event grew out of Negro History Week, which was originally created by historian Carter G. Woodson. Woodson and Minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915, which was dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other peoples of African descent.
2: First National Negro History Week was sponsored by the Association for the Study of African American Life and History in 1926. It was held in the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Doug- Douglass.
0: Frederick Douglass is amazing, and if people aren't familiar with him, you need to go and read his biography, his autobiography, which is amazing and life changing. Please. Yeah, he's
1: great. So between 1926 and the 1960s, mayors in various cities began recognizing Negro History Week. Civil rights movements and a growing awareness of black identity led to the week evolving into a month on many college campuses. February has been officially designated Black History Month by each U.S. president since 1976, which was um, Gerald Ford's year.
0: Black History Month has been officially recognized in Canada by the House of Commons since December 1995, following a motion introduced by the first black Canadian woman elected to Parliament, the Honorable Jean Augustine. This motion carried unanimously by the House of Commons.
1: So in February 2008, Senator Donald Oliver, the first black man appointed to the Senate, introduced the motion to recognize contributions of black Canadians in February's Black History Month. Again, it received unanimous approval and was adopted on March 4, 2008. So it's interesting how, how much of a time gap there was between those two motions, but maybe it was because the people weren't in place in the actual institutions.
0: Yeah, it could be. It's also surprising that it has taken so long for those people to be in those institutions, to be represented in the House of Commons and also in the Senate. That's a very long time.
2: I agree. I also think that because these stories are coming out more and more every year, there we're discovering more stories about Black Canadians. That there's
0: more of a push to, for this history to be recognized, mm-hmm. especially since it's coming from places that might we might not otherwise expect. Right, like that's part of why the We Are the Roots project is so interesting. Is because it's not a place that we often think of. Like I don't usually think of the prairies as being a place where there was a black uh, American African American presence like that's not something absolutely yeah those are stories that I wouldn't have even considered it makes sense as soon as you hear it you're like of, of course and of course I would love to know more about that yeah. but it's not something that immediately comes to mind so it's so many of these stories are invisible and are becoming more visible as time goes on which is amazing but it just makes you wonder how many more stories are currently invisible
1: yeah, and I think the research we have here is just sort of a snippet of what really is the black presence in Canadian history. We'll find it really does go back as long as Canada's been this uh, a colony, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just that for whatever reason, we haven't been discussing it. And it has been discussed, it just hasn't been as widely or as popularly discussed. There have been people studying this for decades and even longer than that. Like, there, It's not a shock to very many people, but... I think, in a popular sense, it still is very unfamiliar. So with that, let's start in on our first um, person, Marie-Joseph Angelique.
1: Marie-Joseph Angelique was born in 1708 in Madeira, Portugal, and died June 21st in 1734, Montreal, Quebec.
0: As historian Afua Cooper summarizes, Marie-Joseph Angelique was an enslaved black woman owned by Therese de Couen de Francheville in Montreal. In 1734, she was charged with arson after a fire leveled the Montreal's Merchants' Quarter. It was alleged that Angelique committed the act while attempting to flee her bondage. She was convicted, tortured, and hanged. And while it remains unknown whether or not she set the fire, Angelique's story has come to symbolize Black resistance and freedom.
2: Not much is known about Angelique's early life. Cooper proposes that Angelique was likely enslaved in Portugal and then taken to New England via boat where she was sold at age 20 to the French merchant François Poulain de Francheville in 1725. Francheville then took Angelique back to Montreal to work as a domestic slave. When Francheville died in 1733, Angelique was
0: left to Francheville's wife Therese de Coen. In December of that year, Angelique asked Madame de Francheville for her freedom. She was denied this request. Instead, in 1734, Angelique was sold to a man in Quebec City. It was then rumored that her new owner was going to sell her once again into enslavement in the West Indies. So far, this is very, very sobering and incredibly depressing, which I'm sure all of these stories are going to be. It's just so challenging to hear about this and know that these were, this was just typical. This isn't even unique in its story. It's unique because we have it so well recorded, Mm -hmm. but not because of the events and the circumstances of this story.
1: and I'm sure many people don't think about slavery in 18th century Quebec but it existed.
0: And it's not something that we think about when we're walking through the old city in Montreal or in in the old city in Quebec either right it's not as you're walking around looking at the beautiful UNESCO World Heritage site of the, the Quebec wall you're not thinking about the slaves who were living there and who were experiencing all of this you know horrible conditions and just even just the fact that they were owned they weren't their own people they didn't have freedom that's not something that is part of our narrative as readily or that comes to mind as readily as part of our narrative as a country as it should
2: Uh, I think that there is a distinction that is often made uh, between Canadian history and American history that slavery wasn't present in Canada or if it was present it was very small but I think mary angelique's story shows that it was a big thing in canada and also her story shows how horrible it also was
0: Mm -hmm. it wasn't all just people escaping america to flee to canada where all of a sudden everything became rosy and perfect you know this is someone who was brought specifically to canada she didn't come up from america looking for freedom she was brought here in enslavement that's A heartbreaking story and it runs completely in the face of what we're often taught in schools or at least what what I was taught when I was growing up in school I remember learning you know slave uh, liberty songs and it was all about how Canada was where they were trying to get to and how great it was and how we were the amazing hero of the story because Canadians were so forward thinking and we were the liberty that they needed And that's just not the case in so many stories.
1: Yeah, I think slavery is often painted it as a distinctly American phenomenon, uh, even though, especially in in this period, it was globally everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's in different forms. It's not always seen in the American uh, version of slavery, but still slavery exists in different forms globally in this period.
2: Yeah, and I think... Uh, Marie Angelique's story shows how global it was. You know, she was born in Portugal, Mm -hmm. enslaved in Quebec, and then also was potentially going to be sold to the West Indies.
0: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. let's get back to her story and find out what happens next.
1: When Angelique heard of this new sale that would send her to the West Indies, she was rightfully enraged and threatened to burn down Franchville's house with Franchville inside. Angelique then ran away with her lover, Claude Thibault, who was an indentured white laborer from France, but not before setting fire to her bed in the home where Francheville had temporarily moved her. The couple then fled and hoped to catch a ship bound for Europe, as Angelique was hoping to return to Portugal. But then two weeks after they ran away, Thibault and Angelique were both caught and brought back to Montreal. Thibault was placed in jail, and Angelique, quote, continued to state that she would burn down her mistress's house because she wanted to be free.
0: That is heartbreaking. And to be so close and then be caught and brought back.
1: But also what's interesting here is that we have her voice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's quite remarkable, actually, that we have quotes from her. I mean, it's, as much as it's a very unfortunate situation, it is helpful to have her voice recorded.
2: That's definitely rare in histories of enslavement. Like, in America and also in Canada, it's rare to have a slave narrative.
0: Even if it's one that's as limited as this one is, still, even having anything at all is remarkable. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, on the evening of April 10th, 1734, which was a Saturday, 46 buildings in Montreal's merchant quarter were destroyed by fire. On April 11th, Angelique was accused and arrested. She was taken to court where she was charged with arson, a crime, Cooper notes, that was punishable by death, torture, or banishment. In New France, there were no trials by jury, just inquisitorial tribunals. Lawyers were banned from practicing in the colony by the order of Louis XIV. On April
2: 12, 1734, Angelique's tribunal began. It lasted six weeks, and over 24 witnesses were called. 23 of them believed that Angelique was guilty because at some point all of them had heard her threaten to start a fire. Angelique was found guilty and sentenced to death. Throughout the duration of the trial she insisted that she did not start
0: the fire despite this angelique received her sentence i think it's interesting that out of the 24 witnesses 23 of them believed that she was guilty because they'd heard her speaking about it and indeed we have like that recording as well from her narrative but that just means how easy it would have been for somebody to have pinned this on her like if if all of these people know that she's been commonly heard saying that she wants to burn down her mistress's house I mean how how easy would that have been for someone who want wished ill against her to be able to then pin it on her say her her master no longer wanted to deal with her and thought she was you know too much trouble to be worth her while it would be very simple to like frame her for something like this and not have to deal with it anymore it's it just seems too convenient I mean Who knows what actually happened, but she seems to be pretty insistent on the fact that she didn't do it, despite having earlier been just as insistent that she would really, really like to have done it. Um, So I think that definitely is still an important piece that she was insisting on uh, her innocence.
1: I think regardless of the results of the trial, the fact that this trial did happen really cemented Angelique as a symbol of Black resistance and freedom, especially in Canada at the time when... We don't have a lot of these narratives.
2: It's also interesting that there was a trial and how fair those juries would have been to her or the witnesses would
0: have been to her mm-hmm. at the time because she was a black enslaved woman. Right, she was the ideal scapegoat, right? She was black, poor, enslaved, and a foreigner. And this is all also noticed by by Cooper in her narrative when she's um, retelling this story. Because of her status as a slave, Angelique's rights were not respected in New France or by white society at all. So it really is the perfect crime to have pinned on someone or, you know, to be able to enforce the, um, the, the punishment on someone, regardless of whether or not they've committed the crime.
2: Born in Truro, Nova Scotia around 1911, Portia White was initially a teacher in Africville and nearby Lucasville another black settlement farther north near Sackville. Portia White started singing with her church choir and took lessons. In 1939, she won a scholarship to the Halifax Conservatory of Music. She was a contralto. She was the first singer trained only in Canada to reach an international stage.
1: White made her debut in Toronto at the Eaton Auditorium in 1941, and she was declared by Hector Charlesworth, a writer for the Saturday Night and the Globe and Mail. Quote, one of the most promising vocalists Canada has ever produced.
0: White became the first black Canadian concert singer to win international acclaim, notwithstanding the difficulties she faced booking performances because of discrimination. Author Donna Bailey Nurse, in her book, What's a Black Critic to Do? Interviews, profiles, and reviews of black writers, writes, quote, An odd sort of paradox was at work. At the same time that critics were applauding Portia's musical accomplishments, they were also diminishing the role she played in her own success. End quote. More recognition was given to her teacher, Ernesto Vinci, and her patron, Edith Reed, and many articles describe the singer as, quote, a person of little motivation and less aspiration. She obviously harbored ambition enough to avoid domestic work, the chief career option available to black Canadian women, end quote. So a real, like, um, slap-in-the-face compliment, you know, like...
1: A backhanded compliment. Yeah.
0: A real backhanded compliment, like truly like you've you've accomplished all these amazing things you're a super talented woman but only in the context of like you're too lazy to want to do what the rest of the black women are wanting to do that's awful yeah
2: it definitely shines a light in the stigma that is placed on not only women but black women in canada
1: So despite these difficulties, White still managed to tour across Canada, the United States, and into Latin America. Many have said the high point of her career was a recital in New York City at New York's Town Hall in 1944. She retired in 1952 to teach voice in Toronto after suffering vocal difficulties and being diagnosed with cancer.
0: She returned to the stage occasionally, most notably her performance for Queen Elizabeth in Charlottetown in 1964. The Halifax Chronicle Herald called her the singer who broke the color barrier in Canadian classical music. And eventually she died of cancer in Toronto on February 13th, 1968.
2: Sadly, White did not produce any commercial recordings. However, her family made a memorial album from recordings of two concerts. White has been commemorated on a stamp, part of the Millennium Stamp series. A monument in Churro, carved out of a tree, and and in a documentary called Think On Me, and a scholarship in her name, in the Nova Scotia Talent Trust, given to vocalists with exceptional potential.
0: I think the story is so interesting because it's, you know, it isn't a story of enslavement, but it is still very much about that discrimination that obviously results out of this enslavement and out of, you know, the way that we've been treating people in Canada for basically since it's existed.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a story of how racism carried over from... The time of slavery in Canada, and then how the descendants of those slaves still experienced discrimination, and even someone so talented as Portia White, it didn't matter.
0: She still had to go through her troubles, but she overcame it. Mm-hmm. It's that sense that it's not as simple as just, you know, outlawing slavery and abolishing slavery. There's still all of these ripple effects that continue even to this day, um, but that it just, it takes so much time to move past all of that discrimination, all of the prejudices that are still so widely held and that are still just a part of, of society, they're just embedded within it.
1: In the same period, our next profile, Violet Henry King, lived on the other side of the country. Violet was born in Calgary in 1929. She was the daughter of John King, whose family first settled in Keystone, now Breton, Alberta, in 1911. They had moved from Oklahoma, which had become a state in 1907 meaning that Jim Crow laws were legally practiced in that land, which had formerly given slaves refuge and relative freedoms not found in the American South.
0: After eight years in Keystone, Violet's parents, John and Stella King, moved to Calgary in 1919. John worked as a sleeping car porter with the Canadian Pacific Railway, which was not uncommon for urban black men in the Canadian West, and Stella worked as a seamstress.
2: Violet and her younger sister, Lucille, were the only black students in their classes, yet this didn't hinder or impact their achievements, whether academically or socially. She, along with her sister, were executives of the Girls' Association at Crescent Heights High School. She was actively involved in the High Y Club, a subsidiary of the YMCA, and received that High Y Honor Roll in 1946 and 1947. She was among four female high school graduates that aspired to male-dominated careers, which were revealed in her grade 12 yearbook
0: that she wanted to be a criminal lawyer. So following her 18th birthday, she enrolled at the University of Alberta, where she received the C.J. Henderson Scholarship. But in spite of her academic success, Violet felt self-conscious as her goals set her apart from her female contemporaries and her own black community. Because of this, she kept her education concealed from many. She was achieving so highly... Getting all these scholarships, attending university—these are all amazing things that people would normally be so proud of, and yet she has to hide that. That's like it's shameful. As though it's shameful. Exactly. That is
1: awful. I think. I think it's worth mentioning too that that just ha- that happens a lot, and when you have uh, communal like there there isn't the communal appreciation for education. Hmm. I know that happens a lot in uh, like English working class culture. Like people shouldn't go to schools or everything. And they're like, why would you get an education? Hmm. So it is like that culture of shame that's putting people down for wanting to um, go out and achieve more, especially when she's wanted to achieve that for so long and then having to hide it from everyone. That's just a shame.
0: And considering, you know, just how groundbreaking it would be for her to be able to achieve this to have that not be something lauded, but instead something to be hidden, to be concealed. That is absolutely heartbreaking.
1: And really sort of speaking to how unique she was, during her years at the University of Alberta, uh, beginning in 1948, she was the only black woman enrolled. So just like her time in secondary school, she was involved with a variety of campus activities throughout her years at school. So she still built her own community. But it must have still felt isolating to Mm. be separated from, you know, the community you grew up in. In
2: 1950, Violet joined the Faculty of Law, where she was the only one of three women enrolled that year, and the sole female graduate three years later. And it appeared that she did not have difficulties finding articling positions,
0: beginning almost immediately after she completed her studies. And on May 14th, 1953, she received her degree of Bachelor of Law.
1: After graduation, Violet was accepted to article for Calgary criminal trial lawyer, Edward J. McCormick. After a year with Edward McCormick, she was called to the bar on June 2, 1954. During the presentation of the bar admission, McCormick told the court, quote, I have an application which ranks as one of the most pleasant I have ever made in any court. During the year of articles, articles made difficult and strenuous, Miss King measured up to everything she was asked to do and even more. She is qualified to be a barrister and solicitor of Alberta, End quote.
0: Violet's bar admission received coverage in both Calgary's Daily Papers, as well as the Calgary Herald, the Albertan, and the Edmonton Journal. Both Calgary papers proclaimed the day as a milestone in Canadian legal history, with one editorial titled, A Dauntless Young Woman.
2: Violet's career as a criminal lawyer was brief, but only because she saw an opportunity to work for Canadian citizenship and immigration in 1956, for which she cites her legal education and experiences as training for
1: her role. Publicly, she once discussed her challenges with racism following her bar admission in a speech given to the Calgary Beta Sigma Phi Group, which she was a guest speaker. She said that, quote, It is too bad that a Japanese, Chinese, or color girl has to outshine others to secure a position. Going on to discuss that she hoped that in the future, issues of race and gender would not be considered in a candidate's ability to do a job.
0: Would that we were in that day already. We're getting closer, but yeah, we are definitely not there yet. And
2: it's so interesting that she started to work for the Canadian Citizenship and Immigration in 1956, and it's like she's taking her experiences. And she's helping others in similar positions. It's just such, like, a beautiful way to carry
0: on your service. Yeah, she's trying to shape the world and the experience of others, right? Like, it's it's absolutely inspirational. I mean, Violet's whole story is inspirational. In the face of gender and racial discrimination, she continuously excelled in her academic, social, and professional endeavors. And it's apparent that from her achievements in her career, she was a remarkable and determined woman, even being, you know, noticed that way by various newspapers and by people that she worked for who spoke so highly of her. Her coverage in local papers reveal a community interested in her accomplishments, and documentation also gives the impression that she was confident, intelligent, and well-liked. However, unfortunately, Violet's life was cut short, and she died of cancer in 1981 at the age of 51, though some reports state that she died the following year. It's wonderful that she was so ambitious because it meant that even though she had such a short time, she was still able to accomplish I mean, probably more than most people um, and to rise so far in that time as well. I think that she was still able to make a huge difference, which is remarkable.
1: And I think working in Canadian immigration and citizenship really gave her the opportunity to touch so many people's lives and help many people become Canadians.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that societal change, right? Instead of Mm -hmm. just being about changing individuals or just being able to make a better life for herself she it, it's clear that she was striving to change the situation for people in general not just for herself yeah
2: um, bringing new bringing new cultures and ethnicities into canada definitely helps to change the
0: landscape and change people's thinking of mm-hmm. like what is canadian yeah and and helps to slowly do away with that prejudice and with um the discrimination that's kind of baked in already into society right if we diversify then it's it's diluting that voice and and not normalizing it anymore absolutely
2: yeah so we've heard stories from different provinces so far uh we've heard a story from quebec and also from nova scotia
0: and alberta and,
2: alberta. and so now on to ontario with uh the story of albert jackson albert jackson's life began with the fight to overcome oppression Born into slavery in Delaware in the 1850s, Albert Jackson's mother, Anne-Marie Jackson, escaped from enslavement through the Underground Railroad with seven children, including Albert, who was a toddler at the time. The family settled in the Black neighborhood with the descendants of former enslaved African Americans who
0: fled to Canada during the American Revolution. It is impressive that they were able to escape enslavement with seven children.
2: Yeah, also, uh, the Underground Railroad lots of men escaped through the underground railroad it was very difficult for women to escape mm. because they had children because it was harder for them to es- escape their masters um so it's really testament for Anne marie jackson to be escaping with seven children and that long journey to freedom it just shows how badly she wanted a better life for her kids
1: Emory marie jackson learned in 1858 that her owner was intending to sell her for children Anne-Marie then made the decision to run away to Pennsylvania, which was a free state at the time. Once she was in Canada, life in Toronto wasn't easy. Jackson's mother worked as a laundress to provide for her family. The other Jackson children also worked. The family appears in an 1871 census, where Albert is the only child listed as educated.
0: His years of schooling paid off, however, receiving a position as a letter carrier in May 1882, at the time, he was the first African-Canadian to receive that position in Toronto.
2: However, his white peers refused to train him, and he was demoted to Hall Porter. The tight-knit black community in Toronto protested against this mistreatment. Many people wrote letters to the local newspapers and held large meetings at local churches.
1: At the time, C.A. Johnson of the Globe wrote, quote, This damnable prejudice on account of color must stop. We feel much ashamed of these postmen and we believe that the Canadian public condemned them in their heathenish action towards Jackson.
0: T.C. Patterson, the Toronto Postmaster at the time, was worried about how this issue could cost Prime Minister John A. Macdonald the black vote, therefore hurting his re-election campaign in 1882.
2: A Toronto World article titled The Colored Question on May 31st, 1882, shed some light on the issue. Quote, Last night, a deputation interviewed Sir John A. McDonnell on the case of Alfred Jackson. The premier promised them that the colored youth would go to work as a carrier, come what may, for which the deputation expressed many thanks.
1: On June 2nd, 1882, Albert Jackson was finally able to carry out his rightful position as a postman. Jackson worked in the postal service until his death in 1918.
0: So born into slavery, losing a father to the horrible system of servitude, and escaping slavery for the hopes of a better life in a country foreign to him, Albert Jackson is a major example of the fight for civil and economic rights for African Canadians throughout history. For several years, descendants of Jackson lobbied for his story to be commemorated, and in January 2019, Canada Post issued a stamp on his behalf, coinciding with Black History Month. Which is so amazing because he worked for The Post. Yeah. I think that's like even more meaningful, you know? Yeah. And it's also because he was the first
2: black Canadian to have this role in um, Toronto, it's just surprising that it took this long to have a commemorative stamp on his behalf. It's just such a big achievement. And especially because his story was already in like headlines of that day Mm -hmm. the globe johnny mcdonald was involved you know it's such a small story but with such big you know impact
0: yeah it seems like it was a very high profile story at at its time and yet it's kind of receded into the past and we don't we don't really know about it i I hadn't i wasn't aware of the story prior to the research for this
1: no i hadn't heard of it myself
0: yeah i think all of these people that we've delved into are so remarkable because they, they each show just that determination of spirit, right? Like they couldn't be broken despite their circumstances and they, they each had very different circumstances. They lived in different eras from each other in different provinces. Um, all of their experiences were so unique and yet so similar in the way that they persevered throughout them and just showed that they were better and, and bigger than their circumstances. They were able to rise above and rise through them press on and, um, and not be not be broken. And that is, that's a story that anyone can find inspirational. And that's a sto- those are stories that we should be celebrating regardless of Black History Month. They should be told all the time. They should be part of the school system. They should be part of the people that we laud and commemorate just in general.
2: Yeah, I think it's also important to not only show the remarkable stories, but also we shared the story of Angelique And her story was very tragic. Mm -hmm. But it also was important to tell because it showed how severe the treatment of, you know, black Canadians were at the beginning of, you know, Canada itself.
1: And even jumping forward to the 20th century, the stories that came out of We Are The Roots, of people's day-to-day experiences with discrimination. Everyday people who maybe didn't become lawyers or... Famous singers, but they still had the same experiences, and they dealt with the same adversity.
0: Mm-hmm. It's certainly there's certainly stories that continue to resonate today, and they resonate across cultures as well. Like uh, outside of just um, the Black community, there are many other communities that still experience these types of discrimination and prejudice. So it's it's very relatable to many Canadians, I would think. So it's it's important that we give these stories the time that they deserve and the recognition that they deserve
2: yeah because it will hopefully give the opportunity for more stories for more people of color to be recognized especially people of color within Canadian history because it's such a untold story in a way
0: Mm -hmm. and those stories are becoming told as we mentioned earlier but there's there are always there's always room for more and we would love to explore more of them and um Listeners, if if you have a story that you think that we should tell, please write to us. Please tell us about it, because we would love to give more airtime to those stories, to those experiences, to that history. Um, That's something that we think is so valued and important, and we would love to have the opportunity to be able to give voice to to those histories. So thank you so much, Kirsten, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Kirsten. And thank you for contributing to the research on this episode as well. Thank you guys for having me. It was a great experience.
2: Well, it was nice to be able to have your voice as part of this as well, you know. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. All the stories that uh, we provided today and all the research that I got to do was a privilege.
0: Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers... Word to Hi Daniel, the lovely Kirsten Stewart who was here with us today, Anna Kuntz and Leanne Gutty, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistoryca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us or send us some histories that you think that we should be covering, please email us at podcast at knowhistory.ca or reach out over social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.